0: 7. Win or go home. The playoffs. Weeks 15 and 16. In a word, Brad's team was bad. In two words, his team was a joke. In three words, his team was really very bad. To be fair, this was his plan from the beginning. He had sold the farm securing a title the year before and now was in a rebuild. The fact that he was in the playoffs was remarkable given the draft capital and ill-advised trade of Dalvin Cook. He had made some nice mid-round picks in the draft as a result of this trade, including Deontay Johnson, Melvin Gordon, and Brandon Cooks. These players had floated his team to this point. Still, he was clearly the odd man out in terms of talent at the table of the playoffs. He had the second lowest point total in the league, and his team had limped into this playoff position based far more on luck, the collapse of Joe and Casey, and the overall clear and obvious weakness of the dissumption division. Still, he had done a nice job given his really bad team, winning seven games in the regular season. He had handed Gabe one of his three losses previously this year and had managed to score 168 points in a week once. In a game that is decided on a week-by-week basis, all teams are dangerous. I confided in Pete that Sunday morning that I didn't like the matchup at all. Brad did not have many, if any, playoff-caliber players on his roster, but seemed to have good matchups. Kirk Cousins against a deplorable Bears team scared me, as did Chris Godwin's record against New Orleans. Deontay Johnson was a good player against a pass-funnel defense in Tennessee, and Brandon Cooks had a date with the only team in a worse spot than his own, the Jacksonville Jaguars. Perhaps this was just playoff jitters. Brad's team would fall well short of impressing in Week 15. I cannot really say I won the matchup with Brad in the quarterfinals. It was more that he lost it. A COVID-ridden league would send out many NFL backups this week. Most of these backups were not fantasy assets, but still impacted the fantasy landscape for the first round of the playoffs. Backup offensive linemen especially limited the entire league's ability to move the ball on offense, and running backs were wrapped up in the backfield, and quarterbacks routinely fell in the arms of defensive ends over the course of the week. This created a week where only two teams in the entire league scored over 110 points. One of those teams, Gabe, was on a bye. While both my team and Brad's would be snake-bitten by Week 15, his team clearly had the worst of it. One noteworthy move I made this week was a decision to drop Damian Harris. He was not going to play in this game, and I needed a bench spot to start stashing handcuffs as COVID spread more widely. Having 418 waiver bucks and the next most being held by Joe at 205, I could afford to drop Harris on Saturday and claim him with a 206 bid the next week. This would still leave me with enough waiver money to claim any other player and have six bucks remaining should I advance. Aside from Brandon Cooks, Brad had still had no player until Monday night score a TD. It was a crippling, ill-timed performance for Brad. Still, he went into Monday night within reach of an upset win. I had managed only 64.5 points myself. Having Matt Gay, Eric Kendricks, Hunter Renfro, Antonio Gibson and David Montgomery left to play provided reason for optimism, but Brad had managed 70.1 and held a slight lead though it'd be scored with more players. Still, his quarterback Kirk Cousins and linebacker Roquan Smith remained to play Monday evening. I was about where I began the week when it started, in a game that I should win, but by no means was assured victory. Renfro disappointed in the early Monday night COVID rescheduled game. He was a big piece to my stretch run, but Week 15 was a bust as he managed only 4.2 points. Still, I was in the driver's seat, and Brad was lacking players. It seemed evident that the game would come down to the Monday night matchup where I had three and Brad his final two players left. Things got off to a good start for Brad as Captain Kirk Cousins led the Vikings down the field on the first drive and threw a touchdown. Brad needed a big game from Cousins to win, and the first piece of that game was in place. Yet, much like the first drive of the Packers' divisional game against the 49ers in 2022, this was the end of the dramatics for Cousins. He would throw another TD that night, but only accrue 87 total pass yards in a 10.48-point effort. Roquan Smith failed to provide the big play required as well, and totaled only 6.5 points. Still, a lead remained for Brad as David Montgomery and Eric Kendricks also fell victim to the COVID blues and scored only 11.8 points between them. Going into Tuesday night, Brad was now out of players but holding on to a thin 87.8 to 80.5 lead. I held running back Antonio Gibson and kicker Matt Gay to make up that difference. The events of the next afternoon in no way impacted the fantasy outcome but are worth chronicling in this epic tale. A common practice in the league when something bad happens to another owner is for the other nine men to race to announce it in the league text thread for the purpose of increasing the pain and anguish being suffered by the affected owner. RIP David Johnson, Uh uh-oh, Jordy Nelson is down and the card is coming, and whelp, who has that guy's backup on their roster, have all been texted to our thread to ensure our ill-stricken friend knows the other nine of us are there to kick him while he is down and to eagerly salt open wounds. Ryan decided to try an elaborate hoax of this nature on this Tuesday afternoon. It was around 1pm when Ryan sent to the league the screenshot of a tweet from Adam Scheffner breaking the story that all Tuesday night games were canceled due to COVID. He followed this up by screenshotting another tweet by Matthew Berry confirming this report and stating that fantasy owners in the playoffs tonight are left shaking their heads. This would leave me short of Brad's score and my playoff run over. These reports were more than a little suspicious from the get-go. First, I followed both of these reporters on Twitter and had been deprived of the initial tweet that Ryan was supposedly screenshotting. Second, the NFL had made clear that no games would be canceled due to COVID, and they made good on this claim the previous year when Denver was forced to play a game with a practice squad wide receiver playing quarterback. Third, quick Google searches revealed no news of this on the internet. And lastly, this is the kind of (coughs) eating stunt that only Ryan would dream up and expect to fool anyone. As I came to the conclusion this was almost certainly bogus, I opened my phone to see the usual chorus from the peanut gallery, chiding my dashed dreams and singing the praises of the alleged fantasy gods who had smited me. The real victim in this stunt was Brad. While my heart rate admittedly did increase a few beats upon my initial discovery of Ryan's screenshots, Brad responded with some joy at first, before commenting about needing to see more to really believe it. While this stunt was clearly directed at me, who needed eight fantasy points from two players to win, Brad was the obvious victim of Ryan's fantasy terrorism. Time will tell if this is a curseable offense. Once Ryan's plot was uncovered, things went on as usual. Matt Gaves would score 10 points in the early game, and Antonio Gibson would pile the dirt on Grime Time's grave with 12.5 fantasy points, one of the better running back totals from this deplorable fantasy week. In all, the only quality fantasy performance on the week was Kevin, who tallied 144 points behind the Mahomes-Hills stack that seemed snakebitten themselves on Thursday night, but rallied for big games in the fourth quarter in overtime. Other noteworthy storylines included the performance of the loser's bracket. Ryan scored 109, a below-average performance any other week. Casey, Hoy, and Joe would all score between 65 and 76 points in a fantasy embarrassment that must have left Hoy yearning for the 146 he scored in the loss to me week 5, when I dropped 203 on him. The win over Brad left Pete as the only man still standing between me and the first championship berth I desired so. Following my 103-point dismissal of Brad, I knew I had to do better in the weeks to come, even as COVID numbers increased. I was done with Mike Williams. Renfro had disappointed and my linebacker position. A strength of my team all year seemed precarious. These problems would be compounded by COVID again continuing to spread, and they appeared in the apparent need to lock up all fantasy running back handcuffs and near impossibility giving my depth at the position. News broke early that week about COVID at Chargers camp. Eckler was placed on the COVID list, removed, and then placed on it again. Mike Williams would also land on the list, and as an unvaccinated player, would be out for 10 days the rest of the fantasy year under the current guidelines in place. An easy cut at that point. Given my massive amount of waiver bucks, I picked up Justin Jackson to replace Eckler and Damian Harris with 206 waiver buck bids, leaving me with six bucks to carry into the title match should I advance. I also grabbed Josh Palmer, hoping that he would perform and I could start him in Williams place if I survived to the next week as a depth piece for the semis. Waller still decorated my bench, as I had yet to find anyone with a pulse to fill the tight end spot, and I prayed he would practice this week. He wouldn't. Another big question that remained was Josh Allen. He had a horrific matchup against New England this week, and I needed every point I could score to assure my spot in the championship. I thought long and hard about cutting Allen for Joe Burrow, who was on the waiver wire, but decided to remain with Allen. As it turned out, in the end, this decision made little difference, as both balled out the last two weeks. With my lineup set, I was ready to take on Pete. His was a better team than Brad, but still a clear playoff product of the much weaker Assumption division. Unlike Brad, he did have some players to fear. Joe Mixon, the player I passed on in favor of Austin Eckler in the preseason, was having a career year and would finish running back three. Matt Stafford, who was having a nice year himself leading a high-powered offense, had a matchup indoors against the number one point-allowing pass defense of the Minnesota Vikings. Most horrifically, in Pete's lineup, ready for a revenge game against the team who cut him, was recently returned Antonio Brown, who would now fill in for the injured Chris Godwin. As it would turn out, Pete never had a chance. My two waiver wire claims Jackson and Harris each surpassed 25 fantasy points. Unimpressed by the New England defense, Josh Allen dropped 30, and Packers great Devontae Adams amassed over 23 points. These four alone were nearly enough to eclipse Pete's dismal 104 that was the product of only six points from Stafford, a goose egg by Devontae Parker, and only 2.1 points from George Kittle on Thursday night. I would coast into the championship week under the propellant of the highest total score in the league that week. The last former champion... The hope of the green jacket-wearing jackasses to keep their club exclusive had been blown from the sky by a win-rocky win without effort. This year, there would be a new champ in the league. Who that was, though, was still very much up in the air. The dogfight of the week was in the other semifinal game between Kevin and Gabe. The matchup would be decided by a post-Christmas Monday night game in the Big Easy. Earlier this week, reigning champion Brad had traveled back from Colorado, trophy in hand for one of us to claim. Upon receiving this message in the text thread announcing it, Gabe arrogantly responded that Brad should just bring it by his house now. All eyes of the league watched as the troubled and quarterbackless New Orleans Saints took to the field against the Miami Dolphins. Alvin Kamara was the last player left on either roster, and Gabe had to make up a simple 5.9-point deficit in order to claim his place in the title-week tilt. Seemed easy enough for a top-five running back. Still, Kamara had come up short of this total twice this year, and once the previous week where he scored a year-low 3.1 points. There was reason for doubt, even for the confident Gabe. The game got off to a horrific start for Gabe. Saints' replacement quarterback, fourth-round pick Ian Book out of Notre Dame, was clearly no match for Miami's ordinary but still professional defense. The first quarter ended without a New Orleans first down and only seven yards by Kamara. Round one to Kevin. Kamara did manage to haul in a pass of significance in the second quarter to go with a few unimpressive carries to bolster his total to just over three fantasy points. Still, Kevin was alive at halftime. The third quarter was more of the same. A 10-yard gain from Kamara did bolster Gabe's score some, but when the fourth quarter began, Kevin still had a slight edge over Gabe. Following more uninspiring play by New Orleans and single-digit yard carries by Kamara, he would finally break off a 19-yard run to give Gabe exactly the 5.9 points he needed to eclipse Kevin's total. The trophy could still be delivered to Mardell. After Gabe texted the group a remarkably unpoetic, phew, Camara brought in another pass, fumbled, and the ball went back the other way for a touchdown. This would score negative two points and place Kevin back in the lead if the video review of the turnover held up. It did not. The ball went back to the Saints, and Gabe had ten minutes of game time left to pad his lead. While Gabe was now ahead of Kevin in fantasy, the reality of the game between the Dolphins and Saints was now changing rapidly. The Saints had scored only three points all game and had been completely unable to move the ball and were now forced into a situation where they had to pass. Moreover, Mark Ingram had been rotating in and seemed to come in as a pass catcher and blocker. The result being that Kamara received zero more touches in the final 10 minutes of the contest as he was rendered ineffective by Ingram, Tony Jones Jr., and the New Orleans need to throw the ball. When the final whistle blew, Gabe was clinging to the same point 0-6 lead over Kevin as when the fumble was overturned. This amounted to less than one yard receiving or rushing to decide a matchup involving 26 players on both sides. Still, a win is a win, and Gabe was now set to face me for all the marbles. I was unhappy with this outcome. Gabe's team was clearly better than Kevin's top to bottom, though Kevin perhaps held more of a high-end punch than Gabe given the a Hill stack. Still, either opponent would be formidable. With two wins against me in the regular season, Gabe Peacock strutted into the championship week with the confidence that he had the best team in the league and arguably the best team built in some time. It was top to bottom a juggernaut, possessing the fourth best quarterback at the time, the two best wide receivers, the best running back, the second best tight end, and with plenty of quality role players to boot. He was an imposing force. This Goliath of a team and the best man at my wedding was now firmly planted as the last opponent between me and the trophy at the end of the road to a championship. Or so we all thought.